Welcome to Curva Mundial. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Curva Mundial. I'm your host, Sal Bono. And today is a pinch me moment as I am joined by my favorite commentator and pundit. You know him from his work over the years at Goal TV, be in sports, and now covering City on Champions League for Paramount+. Plus. Please welcome to the show, Barcelona and Inter-Miami supporter, Andres Cordero. Andres, welcome. What a lovely inter- introduction. Thank you so much for reaching out and, and for the, the conversation we're about to have. Um, it's very kind, and I love doing stuff like this. Just uh, I'm always happy to talk shop, talk soccer, uh, talk uh, the industry. So it, this is, away from calling games, is probably the most fun thing. It's just relaxed, uh, stress-free, and just uh, two guys who love the game chatting. For sure. That, that's really all it is, you know, and I'm thrilled to have you on. And we have so much to unpack about your life, career, fandom of the sport that we both love. But to start it off, you're coming to us from Miami. Now, in an era when most people don't commute to work anymore and work from home, you managed to find a way to land a gig with a hell of a long commute that you travel between Miami and the New York City metro area to the CBS Paramount Studios to do your coverage. So what's this been like for you? Well, it's, it's a dream, really. I mean, part of um, what I, part of the reason why I wanted to call games is I wanted to be at stadiums, right? And through CBS, uh, we got a chance. Like my my CBS sports debut was the Nations League semifinal and final, the U.S. national team in Denver against Honduras uh, and against Mexico, right? Like my very my second game with CBS, I was on a two game deal, was to call a USA Mexico final with a trophy on the line, um, and that's you know one of the most entertaining and and rewarding things about the gig is is to move around to to be a different cities to be at different stadiums last year in our Serie A coverage we just were absolutely privileged to do two games in San Siro we did uh, Milan Napoli myself and, and Matteo Bonetti um, we did uh, the Milan Derby uh, Milan Inter from San Siro toward the end of the season we actually spent sent the entire studio crew producers everyone to go do the uh, Derby d'Italia talk about a long commute went to Turin uh, <laughs> to do Inter Juve uh, I, I believe that was the first time that a Serie A game had been done completely uh, from Italy, where everything, our, our studio analysts, our, our host, everybody was um, at the stadium for that, at the venue. And yeah, you just live for it, you know? Um, it, there's nothing like uh, having to snap yourself out of a moment in the like 80th minute of a Milan derby because you're staring at the curva, which is all just lit up in flares, for, you know, every single row. And you sort of snap yourself back to reality. Like, oh, wait, I've got a game to call. Um, so I mean, it's, a lot, it's a lot of travel. I, I've got two small kids, um, and my wife and, and, and two small children uh, live with me. And that sort of takes its toll when, you know, daddy's flying out on uh, Friday and flying back on Monday every week. Right. But um, I think now they're starting to understand, you know, for, for starters, what it is I do uh, and, and why I have to be away. So it's, you know, it's, it's part of the gig, but it's, it's I wouldn't trade it for anything else. Uh, the, the alternative is to have a real job. Right. That's that's true. I mean, you are living the ultimate fan life and it is amazing. And you and Mateo have just been so fantastic over the years and just listening to the both of you for so long and following your careers has been amazing. But, you know, one thing that I got to say, and I got to hand it to the both of you, I got to hand it to Marco uh, and Mike and uh, and of course, Poppy, everybody, when when you all are in San Siro or when you did Derby d'Italia, you did something that you all did something that I applaud and I don't know if I could do, which is manage to not scream, holy shit, like at at the top of your lungs as everything is happening, as you're in that atmosphere, keeping it so professional, keeping it as, you know, obviously this is why you all are so good at what you do. But, you know, you still manage to bring that passion, but also just 
there was a twinkle in all of your eyes seeing watching you on screen like it transcended the fact that like yeah this is much more than just a gig this is much more than just a job this is much more than just the assignment you all just seem so excited to be there and as you mentioned you know the pinch me moments but that atmosphere with these italian cathedrals if you will that with the decibel levels beyond reaching up to the heavens, you know, what is that like, you know, and how do you manage to just keep yourself grounded and not get so caught up in the fandom of like what else is going on? Yeah. So, I mean, first of all, the, um, there is a mute button on my headset. So there's plenty of like, Oh shit, look at where we are moments. You just don't go out on air. Cause you can press the cough button uh, and you just curse out into the ether. Um, one of the coolest things about of those, th- from those three trips um, was I was really looking forward to hearing um Juve I'm not by any means a Juventus fan I don't really have a dog in the race in City which is one of the reasons why it makes it so much fun for me to see you know this sort of level of of play and and how good the the uh, title contention has been the last couple of seasons um but uh, I really wanted to hear what it sounded like when you know they were singing Juve's you know Storia del Gran Amore at the start of the game because that's one of those moments that you just identify with with Italian football right now with that stadium in particular which you know from the moment it launched has been this like fortress for Juventus they've celebrated nine Scudetti there uh and and just get goosebumps like it, it's one of those things where yeah you can imagine oh it's gonna it's gonna look or sound a certain way but it's just I don't know it, it's it's one of those things that you feel like you're you're part of a you're, you're witnessing a certain tradition a certain ritual um that that just was emotional and and, and just really pumped me up for that game and then the challenge becomes not in any way overselling it once it starts like then the game starts and you do at first treat it like yeah it's a big game but just another big game as opposed to like there's that that danger of sort of overcompensating or or trying to capture a moment when the moment sort of speaks for itself you know and so that that comes with experience and knowing how to um handle those situations that you're not too sort of heavy-handed or ham-handed and it just sort of sounds you know hokey uh so yeah you, you sort of you check your emotions uh you soak it all in and and then you go about the business of calling a game and, and letting the game speak for itself. I think Matteo and I um, have been working at this for a long time together. Obviously, we've called you know hundreds and hundreds of games. I mean, just in Serie A, we did much more than Serie A. We did in sports together. We did La Liga. Uh, we did um, I believe Turkish Super League. Uh, we did some uh, FA Cup, League Cup. Uh, there was some Championship game, probably sp- Championship sprinkled in there. The just the. the Football from all corners of the planet, uh, the Africa Cup of Nations, Africa World Cup qualifiers, Bowl and CONCACAF World Cup qualifiers, right? So we got plenty of reps to try and find our own voices, our own styles. And I think one of the things that we're really proud of is that we don't, as far as I know, we don't sound like anyone else. We, we very much sound like ourselves. And I do think that with American commentary voices in particular, there's this... Um, just They either want to sound like the sort of regular American sports guy for, mm-hmm. for the, you know, 99% of the audience. And so there's a little bit of Americanism sprinkled into that. Um, or they go the other way and they're sort of trying to emulate the Brits without the, the sort of British accent. And I feel like Matteo and I, just through working together at this for a long time, through really being thoughtful about the craft and caring about the product that we're putting out, have been able to develop, you know, our own stellar commentary where we sound like ourselves. And, and you know, that that originality, that uniqueness is, is something that I kind of want to be known for, right? Like people ask me, you know, what are your goals in the industry? Like, what do you want to do? And this is going to sound a little bit conceited, but this, this has been my focus from the first game I called where I knew I was trash, right? Because I I walked out of that first game thinking, wow, that was bad. And holy hell, I want to get good at this, right? Because it's just the first game I did, I just, it it hooked me. Um, And so what I tell people is like, what do you want to do? What do you want to, what do you want to achieve is I want like future American soccer broadcasters to want to sound like me. That's, 
like that that to me would be the single biggest compliment because I feel like if you listen to Argentine commentary, if you listen to Colombian commentary, if you listen to Italian commentary, at some point somebody came along whether it was influenced by radio and in a lot of cases it was in these mm-hmm. you know soccer rich tradition countries. Um, somebody came along and their style was just undeniable and just it stuck and the next generation sounded a bit more like them and mm-hmm. you know that it sort of uniformized the way that um, commentary in a particular um, language and accent sounds right. The, the Brits sound a certain way, even though there's there's some variety. Of course, the Argentines sound a certain way. I don't know that that's like really cemented in American soccer broadcasting yet, right? So that's right. Yeah, that, that's what I I am. That's my sort of Quixotic quest. Like I'm I'm tilting at windmills. I'm hoping that one day uh, I, I can sort of leave that legacy behind. That's that's the way we work. And if we don't get there, which is very likely we don't get there, it won't be for lack of trying. And, and I'll try and maximize my talents as much as possible. Well, I mean, look, as someone who is a consumer of this game and has been my whole life, when I first heard you and Mateo and then first heard Phil Schoen and Ray Hudson, you know, the that the Avengers, I will say, the yeah. four of you at BN, uh, I was I was like, yes, this is what I've I've wanted my whole life. This is it. Like these guys have got the passion, they've got the facts, and I don't feel like this is soccer for dummies because a lot of times that's what a lot and that's what happens a lot in America and especially like World Cup times because that they know like obviously look I get it networks broadcasters they have to sell to a public that might not care and watch every weekend and try and sell a sport that is huge around the world and is finally now starting to make the footing here but how do you do that but you guys just you made everybody feel if you've watched your whole life great and if you've never watched before you walk away going i know enough now that i'm good like you it was it was it was brilliant because it was never pandering to any audience and it was never putting anybody down but it was and it still is and it still is because you all still do this and you know obviously as you continue your careers and that's what that's what like you kind of get like that's your thing and i and i love it and i appreciate it and i can't thank you all enough for it my, my focus was always a little bit like the other side of that right so when i would rather than you know the soccer 101 thing or the idea that you have to um from a business standpoint yes the people making the business decisions absolutely should make decisions that um are trying to reach the largest audience possible right mm-hmm. like you want to do something that, that uh, brings in the casual soccer fans the people who have never seen a game and the diehards I, I let that stuff happen like way above my pay, my pay grade the way that i sort of approached games and coverage was to um give your audience the benefit of the doubt right like mm-hmm. treat them like soccer fans uh, as opposed to somebody that you have to like sell on the sport i do believe that the game sort of speaks for itself so you can tell from sort of the tone that that myself and Mateo and obviously Ray Hudson, who I you know I did all the Inter Miami games with and other stuff with being sports. I, I love that you mentioned Phil and Ray because I've I've been working with them and I'd love to talk a little bit about them. I've been working with them since like two thousand and three, two thousand and four at Gold TV. But um, yeah, the way that I approached these games was there are so many people watching this broadcast who are diehard fans of this particular team whether it's a La Liga game whether it's a Bundesliga game a Serie A game and I can't like in my research in my like week-long preparation for this game or in a couple of seasons I've been covering whatever you know x team I don't know as much about this particular team as they do Mm -hmm. right and so you approach it with that humility like I don't have there's nothing there's no it would be disrespectful for me to for me to talk down to these people about the game and about their team like this is 
something they've been looking forward to their entire their, their whole week you know maybe it's a big matchup or whatnot and so yeah I took the opposite approach that I don't have to teach them anything I'm not I'm not here to you know I'm here to entertain above all else and to give the game the respect it deserves and and, and give the audience the benefit of the doubt that they know their stuff and I think that we're finally at a point now in American soccer coverage like I'm not gonna this is not exclusive to us I think mm -hmm. there's a we're at a point now in American soccer coverage where most broadcasters feel like they don't have to do soccer right. 101 they don't have to, to sort of teach the game there's still obviously some exceptions you know regrettably um but I, I do like that um, that we're moving in that direction and I'm really excited to see what 2026 is going to do for the game in this country because you see everybody sort of positioning themselves broadcasters rights holders positioning themselves for this anticipated boom Mm -hmm. I think in some ways, maybe, you know, 2022 was in terms of like capturing, you know, hearts and minds and the attention of the American soccer public, maybe even more successful than, than we might have anticipated, given it's a, it's a winter World Cup and whatnot. And so right. carrying that momentum now into 2026, like I, I just I'm really eager to see what that does for the game in this country and, and how it helps, how it elevates the conversation, how we can actually talk about soccer stuff as opposed to just you know transfer rumors and just the drama <laughs> around the game and actually like you know talk about the the chess match of soccer that I, I think probably doesn't get covered quite as as much in the U.S. as it does maybe in some other soccer rich nations no I I agree and I I, I agree with you too on these on the sense of like 2026 feels like on a business standpoint every like business person in the media, like with drooling and salivating, like, yes, 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 yes. Like, you know, this thing of we're going to see something so huge. Cause if you look at what happened in 94, obviously yeah. it's the birth of the MLS two years later because of the popularity. Now we're at a time where video games and, you know, I, you can't go anywhere. Now you can go to a seven 11 in the most rural part of America and see Messi's face on a bag of Lay's potato chips. Whereas 10 years ago, that was not happening. So that to me says everything, but you know, your story to get to this point and to get to, you know, helping transform American soccer or the way soccer is viewed in America begins in a very different place. You know, as we discussed your long commute, uh, but you're used to moving around. You were born and raised in Cuba, but your upbringing in the country was short as your parents moved you and your brother to Panama when you were a kid. So what had happened in there? What what had gone on? Yeah, I probably played my first soccer game in Panama, right? So like uh, soccer is now popular in Cuba. In fact, there's more kids playing soccer in Cuba now than baseball. Whoa! Um, it's just that sort of baseball has been the national sport and the one like the, the road to sort of professionalism uh, outside of Cuba has been through baseball. Well, now there's you know any park, any street in Cuba has way more uh, soccer than than, than baseball. Um, when I was in Cuba, that was not the case. When I was, it was very much you know boxing, swimming, um, but baseball was king, and soccer was an absolute afterthought. So it wasn't until I was in Panama that I was exposed a little bit more to it. Um, and even then, I didn't actually pick up the sport with uh, the sort of level of passion and interest that I have now until really, really late for somebody who does, you know, what I do for a living. I was wow. probably, you know, 17 uh, years old when I like really like dove, you know, head first. So it is wild that I ended up doing this um, for a living. Um, so it wasn't really part of my culture. And in, in that in that regard, like I have a unique experience. And one of the, the things that me and my dad bond over is that the traditional sort of road to, you know, following a soccer team or, you know, loving the sport is you're in a particular city, that city has a team, the family, you know, an uncle, a cousin, a mom, dad, whatever is a big fan of it, they pass it down to you. And I've done the reverse. Um, with me, I fell in love with the game again, relatively late. And then my dad, who didn't have soccer as part of his life for most of it, um, sort of started to get a little bit interested just because of what I was doing, because I started to chase a career in it. 
um, he became, we bonded over Barcelona, right? So I covered uh, La Liga. I was, I was with the right, La Liga rights holder from 2004 at Goal TV until, you know, it goes over to BN Sports. And until I leave uh, BN for CBS Sports, I was, you know, probably 15 years of wow. uh, La Liga rights holders. And that, would, that encompassed sort of the entirety of Messi, right? That had... <laughs> the Barcelona with uh, Ronaldinho and Eto and Deco uh, and Thierry Henry. And it's like playing this brand of football that just looked like a different sport at times, right? When you think about the 2009 Pep Guardiola team. Yeah. And so through through Barca, through La Liga, because it's Spanish, because my dad um, is much more fluent in Spanish than he's in English, just allowed us to bond over the sport. And I feel like I passed soccer on to my father, which is like not something that a lot of people get yeah. to do. And still every once in a while, we'll get, uh, not gonna lie, I get a little emotional thinking about it. Like I'll get a text from my dad in the middle of the day. And it's like, thank you for like making me love this game. And I have to, I have to look at like, what did, what did, what did Barca do today? Like what just happened that, you know, uh, cause he's become just an absolute, um, sickle for, for the game and, and never misses uh, La Liga. Big Deportivo fan as well. Cause his side of the family is from A Coruña. Oh, okay. Nice. I would show him stuff about like when, you know, Super Deport in like 99, 2000 and how, you know, they could compete with Real Madrid and Barcelona. Right. Now they're in like Liga 2, right? Like or like second division. Yeah, right? it's not it's not gone well. It's, uh, now it's basically now it's just Celta flying the Galician flag uh, and the Spanish top flight that would have dropped down um, two divisions. Uh, but yeah, so I had that uh, to bond with my dad over and it just made it like extra special. Not only was like now soccer such a big part of my life that, you know, it consumed me professionally and personally, but it also gave me an avenue to always sort of reach out to my old man for absolutely no reason. Um, so we can talk about the, the latest, you know, Barca thing or whatever it was. And at the time there wasn't um, uh, an MLS club in Miami, right? So now we have Inter Miami and I was fortunate enough to work for Inter Miami the first three years of their existence, um, which is like immensely proud of. Uh, but at the time, you know, the fusion had folded uh, around 2001 and we had no more uh, local professional team at the top flight. Obviously, it was Miami FC, a few other, right. but no like top flight until Inter Miami came around. So we got to support a team that was halfway around the world, which is less than ideal. But, you know, we've been to the Camp Nou. We, we sort of fell in love with the brand of football and they spoiled us because they played just ridiculous uh, yeah. for, for many, many years. Um, yeah, so that that's yeah, it became sort of a family thing now like my I have two little boys five and three and my three-year-old my five-year-old doesn't care quite as much my three-year-old like just loves soccer and wants to like kick the ball around with me around the house and uh now I get to experience that other side of it is like getting just as I got my dad into the game I get to have my children sort of oh, you know, that's beautiful, under, understand why I love it the way that I do that's awesome that's I'm sure your wife is just like yeah. Can, can they do something else like <laughs> soccer all day long? I hope she likes it. I hope she enjoys the sport. <laughs> she's indifferent. Uh, she, she, she's good at harmless. And now right. it pays the bill, so she can't say anything. Right, right exactly. <laughs> you know, now in Panama as a kid, did you understand what was happening uh, or what the concept of home was like in new territory with vastly different dialects and uh, takes on the Latin language? So my um, my experience of moving around, just because you can't sort of uh, have that outer body experience to, to see it as anything other than normal, uh, my parents did such a really, really good job with us, uh, with me and my younger brother, um, so that we never felt like we were sort of strangers in a strange land. Or, and we were in some pretty uh, difficult circumstances, right? So my parents were both uh, engineers or were both engineers, not retired, um, move from from cuba up in their lives basically my dad was the age that i am now when he took wow. me and, uh my my mom and my brother i was seven my brother was five at the time uh and just completely started over but moving from from cuba to panama where shortly after we arrive in panama the u.s invades to remove uh, noriega remove the noriega regime so now we're living in you know martial law 
Um, now you can't sleep by the windows because a stray bullet could hit it. There's massive looting everywhere. It's sort of a really scary time for my parents. The reason I say for my parents is, uh, you ever see the movie um, La Vida Bella? Uh, of course, yeah, Roberto Benigni, yeah. Yeah, and I'm, and I'm not trying to compare the situations, but to, but to give you sort of just an, uh, an idea of how they shielded us from it, there's this like really impactful scene in that movie where uh, Benigni's like being like marched off, who, know, got, who knows yeah. where, it's like a gas chamber or something, right? And mm -hmm. so like he sees his son is looking at him and he starts to like march like a toy soldier, like very yeah. playfully, right? Like just hiding the, the brutal reality that he was living in from his kid. And I think my parents, you know, with a significantly less brutal reality, um, but, a, but a very scary one nonetheless, did that for me and my brother to where when my brother's birthday came around, like, you know, they managed to like find some way to get these little micro machine toys that I could give to him as a birthday present. Like this sort of a sense of normalcy around the chaos that was going on with us that I feel like was probably um, just extremely transformative for, for me and for my brother. And then uh, no real uh, plan for how we get out of Panama and into the United right. States. It was just such desperate situations to get out of, of Cuba that that was the avenue that allowed us to do that. After the um, that invasion was over, there are some 5,000 Cubans stranded uh, in Panama. Uh, basically, you were allowed to be there legally, but you weren't allowed to work. It was a kind of a legal human trafficking ring that was being worked between um, Castro and Noriega to get uh, Cubans who had uh, family in America into Panama to circulate U.S. dollars. I won't bore you with all of those details. But when all of that ended, uh, there's a ton of Cubans stranded there. And so the U.S. grants some 5,000 visas to uh, people seeking political asylum. Um, which we were and wow. that's that's how we get to the u.s in 1990 which is a time you know pre uh u.s 94 world cup not mm -hmm. uh, by any means a soccer country in fact you know not even it wasn't even until you mentioned phil shane and Ray hudson earlier it, those guys around 2003 with gold tv is like that was when you finally started to get soccer on tv every weekend a high level that's when you know la liga uh the the Serie A, the bundesliga mm -hmm. every single weekend before that you know Serie A fans are watching grainy footage on rye yes. yeah, i talk about that all the time <laughs> yeah and yeah. you're lucky like you got the live match like yeah. we would get basically pbs here in new york or with the equivalent of a channel 13 they would sundays was always like italian day they would do like the broadcast from the vatican because again christ, you know christ yeah. religion soccer boom yeah. all the same so you would get the pope's broadcast and then a random game but that game may not have been Fiorentina Sampdoria from that weekend it might have been from a month ago and there's no yeah. internet to check any of this so you know and unfortunately yes it's it's the boxes it's the you know the yeah. <laughs> all that stuff and it's like uh yeah okay you know and trying to be the kid in school being like yeah and you watch the game you know, there's no one to talk to we we ripped that off by the way at um at being sports um when we would do something called multi-calcio like I that, that, so. <laughs> that concept was so good the way you've got just like a bunch of games going on at the same time and so the way that obviously you know you think of like uh nfl red zone and whip around coverage yeah. you have a studio host that's like tossing to all of these different games and keeping you abreast of what's going on um we did it very differently we did it where mateo and i so city i would schedule like four or five games together at like 9 a.m on a sunday morning yes. and which you know just does your head in because you want you want to see all these different games as, as a <laughs> soccer fan but they're all scheduled at the same time and often like it would be a good game sprinkled in there um and so what we did is we actually would just call a feature game and it was just mateo mateo and i with the help of our producers, um, would just call one feature game and then we would two box goals as they go from all of the other 
uh, matches being played simultaneously, right? And so like now that's become a little bit more common in terms of like, you know, uh, you're watching a Champions League game or something or a Europa League game and they'll cut in to show you what's happening elsewhere if it's relevant to that game. But what we did was basically, you know, four games in the span of four or five games in the span of 90 minutes with you might have, you know, 13, 17 goals uh, going on and you just have to be on your toes because you don't have all that much time to figure out exactly what happened. You just And that's one area where I really leaned on Matteo's um, Italian soccer knowledge uh, right. at the time he still does know way more than most people um, and so we we knew you could just go into the Stadio Olimpico uh, in Turin and know that it was you know Gallo Bellotti who had just you know scored against Empoli or whatever uh, and that was such a fun two hours of TV and I don't know how many people were watching I know that a lot of like the diehard Serie A fans were but we just had an absolute blast doing that because you'd walk away from that and your head was spinning you just yeah. four games in a high scoring league and it was just absolute blast my buddy would te- we would text during those matches and be like, I think they're doing the Rye thing, but so much better and organized. <laughs> but it's nice to know that Rye, in their own way, w- would end up changing the you know because now as you mentioned, Red Zone NBA is doing it now, like when there's yeah. huge moments. So it's it's an interesting thing that like they were doing it so primitively. As a kid, not a soccer crazed country, Italia 90 had just happened that summer where like in order to drum up support for the U.S. team, O.J. Simpson even had to do a music video for Team USA. So just to put it in context of like how much nobody was caring. But then four years later, this tournament comes and then in 96, a league forms. And you said you had Miami Fusion, as you mentioned, Uh, shout out to all the original MLS teams and those beautiful badges and colors uh, and ostentatious kits. But what was that like for you now finally seeing this thing that you loved happen in this new place? And also, like, what was that like being in this new place? And did your family settle in Miami or was it elsewhere in Florida and you just happen to live there now? No, we settled in Miami and I've actually like, this has been home base for me since I was eight years old, right? So I left Cuba at seven, um, arrived in Miami at eight, and now I'm working obviously in New York, uh, Stanford, Connecticut, um, soon uh, other, you know, sort of stadiums around uh, the country, a couple of games in Italy and whatnot, but, but home base is always Miami and I actually love that like I've, I've been defending yeah. Miami since before Miami was defensible and now it's become more and more of a proper city uh with all of its you know uh flaws uh, which there are many but I, I love this place and I have um such an incredible uh support system for my kids here because both my parents and my wife's parents live in Miami as well oh, and so it would take something uh just extraordinary for me to to leave that you know village that I have helping out with my two little boys right now so that's that's a big part of it um, but, you know, at the time, I, I've always been um, athletic. I've always been in, into sports. I just wasn't always into soccer. I wasn't always into football. So, like, uh, for example, baseball was my first love. It's a sport that my dad taught me how to play um, in, like, the little plazas in Cuba uh, when I was just nice. old enough to hold a bat, basically. Um, when I got to the U.S., I, there's this sense of, like, wanting to – conversations around immigrants are, are so fascinating to me because um, I feel like immigrants are always so eager to assimilate and so, like, willing and, mm-hmm. and looking to – um, just adopt adopt some of the, you know whatever the best things of of the given American culture are, and just I, just I so desperately wanted to to you know learn to play basketball, to learn American football, to do all the other things that like my other again I'm talking about America to Miami, which is like the, the capital of Latin America essentially, <laughs> about as American as, as I had experienced at the time. Um, and so yeah, I, baseball was my first love, so I was playing baseball. I started playing like recreational basketball. Um, high school comes around and I was playing uh, for my high school uh, uh, high school football team 
Um, I played strong safety, loved hitting people, which is definitely like made for defense uh, when it came to that sport. Um, and it wasn't until like pretty late into high school that uh, that soccer started to become a really big part of my life. And I once I was in um, at FIU in college, which is where I met Phil Shane. Like Phil has a lot to do with me um, being the the broadcaster that I am today, and for and for the the sort of road that I've been on wow. is I was the sports director for FIU's radio station. And so I would call like absolutely everything. I'd carry my little like equipment around with me and I would do like, you know, so women's softball, basketball, volleyball, baseball, football, everything that, that, that I could cover just to get to find my microphone voice, to get those reps in. I did obviously a lot of college soccer as bizarre as college soccer is. Um, and it was on a trip to Nacogdoches, Texas, uh, home of uh, Clint Dempsey. that okay. uh, We did like a FIU against Stephen F. Austin um, college football game. And Phil Shane was doing the games for professional radio, professional Miami-based radio, and I was doing it for our college station. And we were the only two soccer fans, us and probably Clint's parents, the only two soccer fans in all of uh, Nacogdoches, Texas, for that particular weekend. So we bonded over the game. You know, Phil's a big Arsenal fan. I would, I would talk to him about Barcelona. Um, he was covering, you know, Barca at Gold TV at the time. They were the rights holders for La Liga. It was him and, and Ray Hudson were the soundtrack to to the league yeah. and to the game. And in my head, still are like I don't care how many games I do. Like Phil is still, you know, the the, the standard for me. And uh, yeah, we got to talking about uh, about soccer and about coverage and whatnot. And he said, you know, when you get back to Miami, talk to so and so at Gold TV. Like maybe he'll get you a production assistant job or something. Then you could get started there. And so that opened the very first door um, for me professionally. Wow. And so when when you talk about like what um, American, what what coverage, what soccer was available to American audiences sort of pre-Gold TV and what was available to them post that. Like, it's now become the best country on the planet to watch soccer. Like, you on, on a given Saturday and Sunday, you can wake up and go to bed watching games <laughs> from Europe, from Asia, from uh, Latin America, from Mexico, with very few, if any, gaps where, like, even in England, you couldn't do that, right? Like, by law in England, you couldn't do that because there's a certain sort of blackout window. Um, and so we've gone from just two things in beer and in soccer. America has gone from one of the worst countries on earth <laughs> to I believe one of the best. It's it's funny, you know. And again, it's you know, it's it's something that to quote Lin Manuel Miranda, you know, immigrants we get the job done. You know, it's like yeah, I look. Exactly. At you, it's funny what you talk about assimilation because I just as you were talking about that, I just kept thinking about my parents and my grandparents, and you know, some did and some didn't assimilate and. You know, and just seeing how much they fell in love with the ideas of America. And I use soccer as a way to connect to my roots from where they're from. So it was always it was almost the reverse. Like they're trying to connect to this place here and I'm trying to connect to this place there as a first generation. So it was always and in sports and music is always kind of like the easiest way and best way to do it. But. And food, I guess, too. But I don't know. We just always grew up eating Italian food all the time. So it was kind of difficult to branch out. As things have progressed and as things have gotten better here, what is that like for you now to see, and your dad especially, to see like how, as we talked about, Messi can be seen on a bag of potato chips in rural America. Like that's like that's a huge thing. Like that's I remember when Italy won the World Cup in 2006. It was the front page of the New York Times and like a reader item on the five o'clock news that night. It wasn't a big thing. Argentina wins a couple weeks ago. Uh, by the time this episode airs, it'll be more than a couple weeks ago. But Argentina wins in December and it's splattered everywhere. And that to me kind of just explains how different things happen in a course of 16 years 
you know, so it has that, have you obviously like things have changed, but have you noticed that too? Yeah, I think when I when I first started doing this, I, you know, there was always that little question in your mind, like, I'm the sort of person that I need to really love what I'm doing in order to be any good at it. And like, I can do things that I don't absolutely love, but I will do them poorly. Um, not not deliberately, it's just I need to be really, really in love with what I'm doing in order to produce anything of any sort of quality. It's the way I've always been. It's why I took the chance on this career. Um, for example, my wife's an attorney, like she could not understand the, the frame of mind that I was in. My, my parents were, you know, both uh, former engineers that they could not understand um, the frame of mind that I was in to, to sort of chase this. But to their credit, um, they always told me do uh, whatever it is that you love and be good at good enough at it that the money follows. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I thank them for that tremendously. And I, you know, pass that on to, to my kids as well. Because um, I didn't find out until much, much later that my dad thought I was absolutely insane to, to try and become a journalist, let alone like a sports journalist, let alone covering what? Covering soccer. Um, and so there was that, that bit of fear when you first not fear but that that question in your mind when you start out is like is this going to go anywhere is this going to be something that I really I'm going to you know make a living at for a long long time or is this just something that I can do sort of for now and I thought at first that I would um that I, w- I wanted to be a writer, right? So I figured out, you know, I'll write novels and whatnot, and I'll have journalism as like my nine to five. My my day my day job will be that, and then I'll be a writer. Else, then I, I did some television. I thought, well, this is actually kind of fun, like TV instead of writing. And you think when you're going to be on television, everybody wants you know the bright lights and to be in studio, like all dolled up and whatnot. But I found that the thing I loved the most was just to be in a dark little room, whether in a stadium or at a studio, uh, alone with you know your your own thoughts and the game that's in front of you. And and just for those 90 minutes, be more dialed into that particular game than anybody who isn't actively playing or coaching in it. Right. And so, like, that's what really made me love um, commentary, not just covering soccer as a journalist, which I've done or as a studio analyst or as a host, but as a play by play commentator. And so what it's like for me now is people really care about this game now. People really, really care about football in America. And it's wild to see how much people care about teams that don't play on this continent. Teams that in some cases, like they may never see play live in official competition, right? So like they may see them when they come in the summer to play, you know, the preseason friendlies or whatnot. And, you know, those are fun. And I I go to as many of them as I can. But yeah, the level of passion and commitment and just how much fans care about a team that you know isn't from their hometown, uh, but they aren't—they're invested. Like the, the idea, like I, I adamantly reject the idea of like plastic fans and whatnot. Which you know, it's a—it's quite an American thing because of the level of soccer that's been played here for so many years compared to the level that you get in Europe. Um, but I feel like we have to do right by those people who care that much about those teams right and, and, and who invest as much time as they do and, and like you know they truly really love it because they have no reason to like it wasn't it wasn't passed down to them they, they love it they they actively like seek it out right and so yeah I, I guess i'm just really um thankful that the game has grown as as big as it has and it's just on this huge upward trajectory from you know, even USA 94, you could just sort of walk around and ask people about the World Cup and they didn't know what was happening here, right? Like Americans were hosting the World Cup and most people had no idea what was even going on here. So where, you know, a couple of years back, I remember seeing uh, New York Times, Wall Street Journal, somebody wrote a piece where they were like, you know, it's not really a soccer, America's not yet a soccer country because only a third of the country watch the World Cup. It's like a third of the country is 100 million people. Like how many countries have 100 million people population? Like it is a major sport in the US now. Uh, is it the major sport? I don't care that it's not the major sport. I care that this many people are invested in it and this many people care. And it gives me the the avenues to do what I do for a living, what I love to do. And, and for seemingly larger and larger audiences every year. 
Yeah, that's awesome. I mean, I, I couldn't agree more. And one thing that also, as, as you've been doing this, you've been very fortunate to work with people who not only just seem to be amazing at what they do, as we mentioned, Phil, Phil and Ray and Matteo uh, and uh, Kate Murray, of course, and everybody at CBS Sports, but they also seem to be just amazing humans off camera as well and you all are very close and very good friends with each other which is unbelievable and kind of unheard of in an industry where people are always quick to stab each other in the back and you hear how cutthroat broadcast journalism is especially in sports because the jobs are not as plentiful as they are elsewhere there's a beautiful family that has been cultivated here and this and these beautiful people like so is that really what it's like off camera that you all, cause it's just, I, I feel like I know all of you and yeah. I've never met any of you. And I want to just kind of like give all of you a hug and say, thanks. But that's a huge compliment, right? Because people let you into their living rooms. They, they make you part of their like weekly habits of, you know, the teams that they watch and, and yeah, they, 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 you're basically a guest in their house without, without even knowing it. Right. And so, <laughs> I, in that regard, I've just been so ridiculously fortunate. Uh, like if, if anybody asked me for advice, like, hey, what do I, you know, aside from like, there's no blueprint for how to like build a broadcasting career, right? But you can sort of improve the the situation, the circumstances around you. And I think the single most important thing is to just surround yourself with people who inspire you. Mm-hmm. And uh, especially now when I, I think about like the group that we have covering Serie A at yeah. CPS Sports is just unbelievable, right? So like uh, Marco Messina, I feel like I've, uh, he reached out to me and Matteo, you know, just years ago when he was doing this um, IFTV thing, this, this brand that he had launched, um, which obviously like City fans in America will be very familiar with Marco and, and IFTV. Um, so like now he's like dealing with like City Out presidents, you know, <laughs> and, right. and, and like all these commercial interests. And like, uh, it's, it's so fascinating. Like the kid that reached out so long ago, like now, I'm, you know, I get to work with him on this stuff and he's, you know, followed his passions. Matteo has become like family to me. And obviously his wife, Kay Murray, was this huge inspiration uh, for me when I was at, at BN Sports. Um, you know, Poppy Miller, our, our studio host with City A, is just this brilliant, like kind person who I feel like uh, when I was by myself in... Uh, Stanford, you know, traveling up and down, like, you know, she was always willing to like, you know, get together, have a dinner, just sort of make sure that I had somebody to talk to while everybody else was sort of commuting and whatnot. Um, Mike Grella feels like somebody I've known my whole life from like the first day I met him, I was like, this guy sort of gets it. Like we just absolutely clicked and it just felt like catching up with an old friend as opposed to meeting somebody for the first time. Uh, some of the producers behind the scenes that, that, you know, people will not be familiar with have also just been incredible. And so I think the single best thing that you could do to advance yourself in any career, any craft, any passion that you might have is surround yourself with people who just truly inspire you, like raise the level of your milieu. And um, one of the funniest things that I heard was when we were like the BN Sports crew uh, was referred to as Ajax, right? Because you think about all these like incredible yes. broadcasters <laughs> who have just gone on from from that like farm system to, yes. to you know, big things. I think like somebody like Kevin Egan, uh, yeah. like Joy, um, you know, obviously Phil and Ray were already like super established when they when they arrived there. But a bunch of us young broadcasters, uh, Eric Krakauer, uh, more yeah. recently, he was doing like the MLS stuff. Um, yeah, just all these people who have gone on to do things that they can be really, really proud of. Right. And so like, it's, it's all, it's not really been connected. It's just been people branching out really talented broadcasters 
who were all together in this one place for a while. And it was just such a pool of creativity and of inspiration. And I feel like it really just turbocharged all of our careers and gave us the tools that we needed to, to really you know, do something big uh, elsewhere. And I'm just really proud of that entire group. Oh, I'm so happy that like that it, it is the what I've what I've pictured and wanted it to be. Uh, and you've also worked with someone uh, who I like to call as the real life James Bond, Bobo Vieri. Yeah, uh, it, like dude is just living it up. Like probably the best post playing career ever. Uh, it, is he just too cool for school to be around? Like, because I, I I I love it. I love the right. fact that like. He is just, he's a dad now, which is still mind blowing to me, but yeah. also he's, he's, he's James Bond. Like that is the modern version of what Ian Fleming had created back in the day. And he's a girl dad, which is just like poetic justice for somebody oh, like 100%. You know, playboy, like, uh, like, like Bobo Bieri. Um, he's brilliant. Uh, honestly, like he, so I, I had a chance to work with him both at BN Sports and now at, um, at uh, Paramount and CBS Sports. Like he, he will join our coverage when we do the games from stadiums in Italy. Uh, Bobo Vieri is like the biggest male celebrity in Italy. Like I, I yeah. don't know that there's anybody that's like a bigger deal than he is. And uh, you know, adopted Twitch as well and had like this like huge following on his like Twitch show. Oh. Uh, it's him and his friends. Um, it's all in Italian, but it's absolutely brilliant. Um, and just seems like somebody who has never stopped having fun, whether in his playing days or after retiring, like he's just this big kid who just wants to sort of live life his way. And there's, you know, something really admirable in that. Um, he told me something really funny years ago. We, we used to do this show together um, called uh, The Locker Room. Yep. Uh, we were able to do that show. K. Murray, we mentioned, would, would host it. We'd have these great guests, right? Like we had Raul of Real Madrid on that show. We had yeah. Luis Garcia. We had Marcel Desailly. Uh, uh, Patrick Clyvert was on that show. Ruth Hollett was a regular guest. He would pop in all the time. Like we would have a show where I'm sitting across the table from uh, Ray. Christian Vieri and Ruth Hullet. It's like, what, what, what am I doing here? What is this? <laughs> and it was an absolute laugh and, and a riot. Uh, but you reminded me of something earlier when you were talking about the Italians and uh, the sort of religiosity, like the things that the Italians have. When uh, Italy missed out on not this World Cup, but the previous one, yeah. Bobo had told me, we're Italian. All we have is uh, pasta and calcio and now we don't even have calcio and i felt like that was such a heartbreaking and honest sort of assessment of what it meant for, for italy to to miss out on, on the world cup and not to bring up sort of an unhappy memory for uh, no it's all good no but it's true though and now ranzoni has has stopped making pastina so now we don't even really have pasta anymore so we're just fucked it's really what it comes down to um that's that's awesome oh so um thank you for confirming all my beliefs on all these all these fantastic people that you work with and mateo is an avid tweeter mateo has once tweeted something that i will never forget for as long as i live and it's about you and it was a a sheet of all of your notes yeah. what you do and the the mind of a madman yeah. uh but this is what makes your commentating so well is is that this photo that he posted had every stat, every backstory, scribbles on scribbles that probably wouldn't make sense to anybody but you, and you need a Rosetta Stone to decipher it, but that's clearly all of your talking points. So how much goes into preparation for a match for you each week? And I know you're only covering like one or two, but obviously there's so much to just talk about so yeah. let, let's hear that 
so I'm so fortunate now to cover, as you said, one or two games per week because there once upon a time we were doing three, four, five <laughs> games in a given weekend, and they would be across different three, leagues. Three, three different leagues, yeah, and, and you know World Cup qualifiers during the breaks, and uh, also I mean just football from every corner of the planet, and I think that's that's obviously helped mold me. Um, but when it comes to my preparation, I've not once in my entire career ever finished preparing for a game. There isn't one game where I was like, the prep is done. Um, there's a certain amount of time that I have. And sometimes it's cut short by this thing or that thing or life uh, comes at you. But um, I, I always try and tweak um, how I prep so that things are more accessible, easier to find, more concise. Um, and so it's just this big arts and crafts project every single day of like sticker making. Um, I like, I keep adding things. Like one of the things Mateo laughs at me for is that like the stickers will look a little bit different from time to time and like new things will be added and like something as, as mundane and stupid as like the material of the folder that I'm using to put the stickers on because it'll be a little bit more rigid or less. Wow. So, so it's easier to like sort of handle in your hands. Like I know this is like deathly boring. Like it's not, it's not the most interesting thing in the world, but all of those things, um, made it so that I was always focusing on getting better. Every single time I was focusing on how to do this better, how to do that better. And, you know, sometimes it was about, you know, cadence and voice and, you know, what level uh, of emotion you put behind it, like how much, you know, because a lot of it is genuine. A lot of it is just me reacting, but then also you have to project a certain way and, and make sure you don't always, you're not always at a 10 because you have to give yourself that room for when something truly special happens for that to sound a little bit different than that other cool thing that was special, but wasn't like, never before seen or whatnot right so finding that that balance is something you work at every single game in terms of the preparation yes there's like the the stats and all of this stuff that is it really really tedious um but in the process of all of this sort of tedious boring work you branch off into all of these little tangents and you find these you know you may come across an optus stat that says that you know roma haven't done yada yada since you know the 98 99 season and so then you look up that team from that 98 99 season you look across and you might find like three guys on it that are now coaching in city and so it gives you this way of like tying all of these interesting things together to create stories um that isn't you know the not just you know writing down stats but the the, way, the areas that that tedious process sends you to is almost like a fact-finding journey to, to yeah. find cool things re relevant to that um, to that game. And so, you know, things like, for example, that after a while, like when, if, when you're doing as many games off monitor as I, I do, right? Ideally, you're calling games at, at the stadium, which is right. still the most, the most fun. Um, but when you're not, when you're first to work off monitor, like sometimes there might be a, a, a debutante or a squad player doesn't get a lot of minutes on, you know, mid-table, lower lower table team, and you can't see the number, right? The, guy, the guy's coming in off, off the bench, and you can't see, and all you see is his face, right? So I started uh ripping off the football manager headshots and adding those to to my sticker for for games as well so now i have like a high definition headshot like they're looking at the uh, bench or whatever and now you know I, I know who's coming in i then said okay well let me not just limit this to players uh it's often that they show the you know president's box and i have no idea who the italian broadcaster the spanish broadcasters or whatnot who they're talking about and so i started putting like club directors sports uh sports directors general managers presidents uh all that stuff's now on the you know on the on the roster the rolodex of all of my stickers as well so that i sound like i'm way smarter than i actually am when i can tell you that that's you know so and so the vice president of uh benevento um just some adding something every single game like whether it's 
new information that I don't normally give that I think, oh, I, I was missing this and this adds something, or just the way that I set uh, the, the information up so that it's easy to access, because you can have, you know, volumes and volumes of notes, but it's, if it's all just a bunch of sheets, you don't really have time to sort through in the process of a game, you'll miss something if you're looking down at your notes. And so it's just this um, constant process of professional self-improvement that I hope I actually never uh, stop. Well, I hope you don't stop either. I hope I'm, I think I'd speak on behalf of all the listeners too, that I hope you don't stop either as well, because <laughs> let me tell you something, the, you can hear the difference. It's sort of like, you know, having a delicious craft burger at, you know, some restaurant and then going to McDonald's like, meh, it's, it's a burger, but it's not. So there's the, I'll, I'll take the craft burger any day. It's got more calories and more grease, but I'll take it any day. Um, you know, one thing that you touched on earlier, you were also the voice of Inter Miami. Obviously, the Apple deal, things have changed, and you, but you have still a passion for this team that you absolutely love. And I've heard for years that sports teams and soccer teams fail in Miami, allegedly because of a so called lack of fan base. But Inter Miami seemed to be finding their footing, especially last season. And a certain World Cup winner who once played at Barcelona is rumored to be going yeah. a season or two. But uh, the fans seem to be there. And it's similar to like LeBron's run at the Miami Heat. The fans were there. They're still there for the Heat. But what Beckham and his team are doing, do you see this team thriving in years to come? Yeah, it's it's um it's sort of a team like forged in adversity, right? Like from the moment right. they launched to to sort of delaying when they actually would uh, come in to then issues about um where, where their stadium would be, like a soccer specific stadium. So they're still obviously playing for now at um the old Lockhart Stadium, now uh Drive Pink Stadium. And it's just like every turn there seems to be like a new obstacle that popped out of nowhere in front of this ownership group so even the ownership group itself is smaller now than it was it, it launched with five owners uh it now has uh, just three it's uh david beckham and the moss brothers jorge and jose mas who are the the owners of uh inter miami now and so there's just this all this adversity it, it really did feel like for a while like everything that could go wrong you know did go wrong for this team on its launch and yet the fans were showing up and, and I remember, you know, this team launched in the middle of a pandemic, right? So right, they, right. they didn't play their first home game for eight, like eight months into the their very first season, their inaugural season, because they played away from home in the first two rounds. Then the season stopped. Then they resumed in Orlando with that, you know, bubble tournament. Right. And so it was, I don't know about eight months, but it was like probably three, four, five months before Inter Miami played their first home game. And it, it's been like that at sort of every step, some of it self-imposed, obviously with the, um, sanctions for uh, the uh, salary cap violations that they had, you know, that sort of another sort of wrench in, in their plans. And yet you just saw this real passion for the team, a team that had just been born from a really hungry soccer public. Miami called it the capital of Latin America, right? You have everything, Brazilians, Venezuelans, Argentines, Colombians, people who love the game and who have, you know, their team in, in their native country, but also wanted, you know, domestic soccer, yeah. And those people showed up, but those people showed up for the original Fort Lauderdale strikers in the seventies and eighties in the days when Ray Hudson was playing right. uh, with Gerd Mueller and Nene Kubias and all those guys. Um, they, they showed up for the Miami fusion when Ray Hudson was coaching. In fact, right. the year that the Miami fusion uh, got contracted, Miami and, and Tampa got contracted. Uh, Miami were the supporter shield winners they had the best record in wow. major league soccer that year and played a just gorgeous brand of football uh, under the tutelage of one Ray Hudson. Um, and so for Inter Miami, I remember in the middle of the, the pandemic where we were doing the games in an empty stadium, uh, 
fans weren't allowed in. You would look to the corner because it's a pretty open stadium. You would look off to the corner and there were like 400, 500 Inter-Miami fans there with drums and flares outside of the stadium. Probably shouldn't have, you shouldn't, weren't exactly social distancing. <laughs> outside of the stadium, which, you know, no liability to the team. Um, with your drums and their colors and you could hear them and the, and the players could certainly hear them. Uh, and shortly after that, um, the the ownership group worked something out with Major League Soccer to allow a few, you know, hundred fans in slowly into into the stadium. With and so, it just shows you the, the passion that they had for for a newly found team that was struggling from day one. That is still, I think, uh, in some ways struggling, but did seem to right the ship uh, to an extent this year. And this city means a lot to me. I've, I've been here most of my life. Um, so to be, this is another one of those sort of like semi conceited things was when we didn't have a team. I would tell anybody who would listen, if Miami gets a major league soccer team, I'm calling those games. I don't know if I get that interview, I'm calling those games. Like I have to, it's, it was a really big goal of mine. And to realize that goal just means the world um, professionally, personally. Um, and so I'm always going to be close to into Miami, whether I'm working for them or not, um, whether I'm covering them or not. Uh, they're always going to like mean a lot to me because like all things Miami, you know, it, it had its, uh, its share of adversity. Uh, it had its sort of wobbly start. Um, but in the end, like the, the good uh, outweighs the bad. And I, I think this team is set up with this ownership group with David uh, Beckham and with the Moss brothers. Uh, it's a place where players want to play, right? When, I, yeah. when when Messi is being talked about coming here, it's because it's a really attractive destination. And so I think it's one of those things where eventually this is going to be one of the biggest soccer teams and soccer brands uh, in the United States. Yeah, I mean, look, between, as you said, just the culture down there, Miami is one of my favorite cities in the country. And, you know, just I could go eat at the Yardbird every day if I could. I mean, I'd probably, you know, die of a heart attack, but the food is so good. Uh, but, I, you know, you have everything there. It's why Gianni Versace laid his roots down there. You know, Miami is a sexy city. It's still Italians love this place. Uh, Bobo Vieri would work with us. At, right. he, yeah. he, lived, he lived on the beach and he would ride his Vespa all the way across town. Like, I can't I can't tell you just you need to know the geography of, of Miami to know that uh, Vieri was taking his Vespa from as far uh, east as you can be on the beach to just about as far west as you can be in Doral without reaching the Everglades. Uh, he looked like Bowser, basically, like on the highway <laughs> in his Vespa uh, to make this huge commute to get there. But the Italians, look, Nesta came down here and was coaching. That's um, right. Like Maldini owned the Miami team for a yeah. minute. Like did, like Miami FC. Like didn't Wasn't he like one of the original investors? He was involved uh, with, the, with the ownership there. Nesta was coaching uh, Miami yeah, FC. Right. Uh, they all vacation down here. Like this is a really attractive destination for for Europeans, but particularly for some reason um, for Italians, you just can't get enough of Miami Beach. Love it. I mean, hey, look, it's 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 great place, man. I see why you never want to leave. Uh, Andres, thank you so much. We're in the home stretch of the podcast. I've got three rapid fire questions to ask you. Now, time for a coffee break. Curva Mundial is sponsored by Mod Cup Coffee in Jersey City. But you can get it anywhere in the world from ModCup.com. ModCup. Drink modern coffee. Use code MUNDIAL for 10% off your first order. Start off. If you could bring back one retired player to your club, alive or dead, who would it be and why? I'm going to go Barcelona because Inter Miami have only been around for three years. Uh, <laughs> so Ronaldinho. Um, nice. you know, very much alive. But if I could bring back prime Ronaldinho, if I could bring back 26-year-old you know, slim Ronaldinho. That yeah, the level of Ronaldinho that just you, you could be surfing in the morning and scoring a hat trick against Real Madrid at the Bernabeu at night. Uh, the Ronaldinho that was applauded at the Bernabeu um, right. after scoring two goals, where he picked the ball up in midfield, would take on three, four guys, embarrass the likes of Michel Salgado and uh, Sergio Ramos, who 
whomever was in his path, there was a joy transmitted. I mean, I'm not going to say anything that hasn't been said a billion different ways about Ronaldinho, but there was a, a joy that he transmitted in his play that was more than sport, that mm-hmm. it transcended athleticism. It transcended what the scoreline was. Um, he would humiliate uh, opposing teams, but in a way with this big goofy grin on his face. So in a, in a way that was endearing, right? And so I often would like compare, like, I think the closest thing we've seen to Ronaldinho in a Brazil shirt um, or just with a Brazilian passport is Neymar. Um, mm-hmm. Neymar is just absolutely sensational, has the ability to do so many of the things that Ronaldinho did, that uh, fantasista um, sort of style of football that Jogo Bonito. Um, but Neymar, you know, would, his demeanor is, has always been a little different, right? His demeanor is like a little bit more pouty, a little bit more serious. Whereas with, with Ronaldinho, he could be getting kicked around San Mames by, you know, okay. 11 athletic Bilbao players. And yet, like, he gets back up with a grin, nutmegs two guys, sombreros the third, and puts it in the top 90. You know what I mean? And there was that that joy that he played with that just made it so much fun. Messi's the best player I've ever seen. Ronaldinho's the most entertaining player I've ever seen. So, like, I would bring him back in his prime form uh, over just about anybody else. Oh, I love it. It's so true. I mean, you know, that's – the kids today will never know. I mean, there was there was that joy. There was that spark and – yeah, yeah, he just made you fall in love with everything. Yeah, you know? The the I think quintessential like Dino moment for me, right? Like he he had more important moments in this, but this is the one that I think just sort of captures like who and what he was. Is his is this famous clip of him um doing a sombrero over two athletic club players. I think they're playing in San Mames. Um, and you know, Basque Country Athletic are a tough team, they, they hit you hard, they, they make their presence felt. And if you look at this clip up in, in on YouTube, he basically sombreros um two defenders and comes away dribbling. But don't look at the ball. Don't look at Ronaldinho. Just beyond them, because it's a close-up shot, you just see the faces of the fans who are watching him. Oh, and they yeah. look like they're watching an alien. Like they they look like they've seen a Martian come down and play football against her team. And there's this look on their face of amazement, bewilderment, awe, and just confusion by by what that is just beautiful to see. And I, I think it just you when you watched him, you knew that you were going to see something that you'd probably never seen before. And he did it with such regularity. As opposed to somebody like Messi, who's there's a simplicity about the way that Messi plays, right? That you're convinced that you can go out and do the things that Messi is doing. You can't, but, but that's just <laughs> he, he's so many ste- like so many chess moves ahead of everybody else. With Dino, it wasn't that. With Dino, it was the artistry and that that just beauty that you brought to the game. For sure. Ah, all right. Well said. Money's not an option in this next question. I know Barcelona needs some of it, but you know we're gonna pretend that they've got more money than PSG. Okay. Uh, if they could sign one player today. Who would it be and why? You could also answer this for Inter Miami as well. Yeah, I'm going to do this with Inter Miami and bring uh, Lionel Messi to my backyard in South Florida um, because you know there's there's again the way that Messi plays the game. You watch you watch people watch him walk around now. Like he walked through this entire World Cup, Boston, <laughs> the World Cup, you know, best player of the World Cup, just walking around. And it's not that you know 30 you know mid 30s Messi now has to walk and doesn't have the energy to run anymore. I was at the 2006 World Cup, the group stage finale between Argentina and Holland, um, which turned out to be a biscotto because both teams were already through in a draw cut. So I was so excited for that game. And instead, they just basically passed it amongst themselves. Uh, but that's an Argentina team um, that had Riquelme and Messi on it, right? And so even then, at 17 years old, Messi was walking around the pitch, scanning scanning the pitch. There's this great uh, video of Pep Guardiola explaining um, you know, what it is that Messi is doing as he's walking. And he's taking all of these photographs of exactly you know how the opposition is lined up where the spaces are and he's just 
just committing it all to memory, creating this diagram in his head. And then he works instinctively from there on to know exactly where he needs to be, where he's going to be receiving what. And so I say all of this because I think he's the kind of player who at 40 years old would still be yeah. a delight to watch because he's not dependent on his physicality. He's not dependent necessarily on his speed. Yes, you need all, you need a, a level of athleticism. You need a high level of athleticism to play this game at a high level. But I think his skill set is one that just will allow him to be doing this at just such an obscene level for so long that I, I would bring, uh, and it's, maybe it's not that unrealistic, right? But I would bring Messi to Inter Miami so that I can watch him uh, in America. And I, I think about what Pele did yeah. when he came in uh, to, to the Cosmos. You know, you think about what Beckham did when he went to the Galaxy. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you're going to see this massive, you know, assuming it happens, you'll see this massive effect of Messi playing stateside. I, yeah, I, I'm kind of jealous that if it does happen, it'll be in Miami, but I'm so excited that I have the opportunity to see him. Yeah, they play away games. They, they travel. <laughs> yeah, they travel. Hey, look, I, I don't need an excuse to go to Miami. So this is great. <laughs> you know, we'll come down. We'll go to a match together. Uh, and finally, what has been your favorite moment as a fan? That's a good one. My favorite moment as a fan was probably any one of the either the 09 or 2011 Champions League final Barcelona against Manchester United both eerily similar right and I still use this as an an example of that Barcelona team Pep Guardiola would never coached um other than like the Barca B team in the third tier of Spanish football before taking over what is the greatest club side I've ever seen in my entire life um he takes over a team uh that has Ronaldinho Deco um and Samuel Eto'o mm-hmm. says I don't I don't need these guys uh, I don't I don't want them they sell Ronaldinho to Milan for 25 million they sell Deco to Chelsea for 10 million they you know Eto'o was worth more uh it was still closer to his prime and they couldn't have, they couldn't find a buyer for Eto'o he actually ended up being moved in a cash plus uh player deal for Slatan Ibrahimovic um okay. shortly after but that was after he helped them win uh Champions Leagues and you'd look at any one of those 09 or 2011 Champions League finals against Manchester United and for anybody that ever tells you the Tiki Taka stuff was boring. Barcelona were boring. I hate the way people defended against that Barcelona team was boring. But if you want to tell me that that team was boring, I'd like you to pick up any moment after the ninth minute of the 09 final or the 2011 final. I still have both in, in HD in my in my laptop. Um, <laughs> honestly, you pick up minute 17, minute 37, minute 89. It doesn't matter. You will you will be seeing a level of virtuoso football, connective team virtuoso football because it's not one player it's not Maradona it's not Pele it's not one guy dominating the team it's this balletic syncopation that this team managed to put together in a fairly short amount of time albeit many of those guys have been coming up through Barcelona's youth system so institutionally they were you know made to play uh, this way and at random with no exaggeration just pick a minute in either one of those finals and you'll see a brand of football that you've never seen before likely and you'll probably never see again and so those two matches were like the magnus opus of football as far as i'm concerned i've never seen a team play better in my, in my estimation than from the ninth minute on in either the 09 or the 2011 uh finals so like i've been chasing that high and will continue to chase it for the rest <laughs> of my soccer fandom because I, I i don't the fact that i got it twice is ridiculous or that i got it for as many seasons as they were providing it for us was just absolutely ridiculous ah Fantastic. I can't think of a better way to end it. Andres Cordero, thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate it, man. 
Hey, really enjoyed the chat. Uh, thanks for reaching out. And um, yeah, uh, hope that uh, this is uh, that this was fun for you as it was for me. Yes, absolutely. Follow us on Twitter at Curva Mundial Pod and subscribe to us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening.